0: once again, to be able to stand here, to be able to open up God's Word, to be able to share its truth, to be able to talk about the realities of the Gospel, to be able to hear the words of our Lord through this parable, and to be able to rejoice in the Gospel that's still at work today. Every Sunday, we gather together and we celebrate the grace of God. Today, we celebrated the grace of God through salvation. We saw it in baptism. And we recognize that what Christ said... In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We recognize that our Lord is still seeking and saving the lost. And it is a worthwhile, it is a worthy thing for us to dedicate our time, our energy, our efforts to the grace of, Of God being proclaimed to sinners. Of which I am. And you are. Because only the grace of God through His gospel, through His Son Jesus Christ, only that will save. Only Christ will save. In our passage this morning as we continue Our study in the Gospel of Luke. Christ's eyes are set for Jerusalem. And He has set His eyes there. He has set His focus, His path towards Jerusalem. Because He is on His way to be crucified. This Sunday morning is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter. We will celebrate once again the grace of God next Sunday and we will understand and be reminded again that Christ set His eyes for Jerusalem. He did die on the cross, but praise God, He didn't stay in that grave. He rose victoriously to conquer sin and death. And that is what we place our hope in. Next week, you will look not at the triumphal, or not at the resurrection through the eyes of of the text, but you will look at the victorious Christ through the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He didn't go to conquer Rome. He didn't go to overthrow Caesar. No, he came as a triumphant victor to conquer sin and death. But before next week comes and before we see that text, here we're going to look into a parable that Christ tells, that He says, We'll read verses 11 through 27. But before we read the parable, I want to say a word that this parable is significant for all of us in this room and all of us who can hear this parable because no matter where you are, no matter who you are, you're in this parable. Every last one of us fits into one of the characters that Christ's that Christ brings up through this story. Let me read it to you. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. He said to him, Well, Done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you did not sow. he said to them, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, "Lord, he has 10 minas." I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. We do praise you. We thank you for this parable. We thank you for the reminder that it gives us for for the fact that we can see your grace so clearly abounding in this parable for the fact that we are all in this parable that we can see ourselves here I pray God that as we dive into this text as we look at the parable of our Lord that father you would open our eyes to see open our ears to hear, God, that you would awaken our minds to understand the truth of your grace, the abounding, excessive grace that you provide for all those who are found in you. It's in your Son's name, Jesus, we ask these things and for his sake. Amen. It's a pretty simple story. It's a parable that the Lord makes. Uh, he makes up as he's nearing Jerusalem. And we can sum it up really quickly. It's about a nobleman who leaves to be inaugurated as a king. And then he comes back. While he's away, three different groups of people are highlighted. You have the faithful faithful to this nobleman to this king while he's away you have the unfaithful or the false who are seeming to try to be a part but have no commitment there and then you have those who hate him those who despise this nobleman the faithful are rewarded The unfaithful are rejected, and those who hated him are destroyed. Very, very simple. We can sum it up very quickly. But there's so much more to this parable than what we can say in just a brief summary like that. Some of you might have thought that this parable sounds familiar. And it does sound familiar to us. Um, And that's because of the parable of the talents that Jesus shares in Matthew 25. Let me go ahead and, and say that this is not the parable of the talents. This is a different parable. This is the only time in Scripture, in Luke 19, where this parable is seen. It is not the same as the parable of the talents, Uh, And there are several differences that are worth noting because they're not the same. I'm not going to pull out the differences in an exhaustive format. But just understand this is a different parable, so it does receive different instruction. And it does deserve its own look rather than trying to compare it to the parable of the talents. But not only does this parable sound familiar to us, which, by the way, the parable of the talents he is going to share in a, a few days as he gets, um, gets up on the, uh, on the hill of Olivet and as he's preparing to die, even it's a little further on in the timeline. It doesn't just sound familiar to us because of that parable, but it sounded familiar to the audience that was right there beside Him. They were near Jericho, and so they would have been familiar with what Jesus shared because the story He tells is a story that actually happened. In a real timeline. Now he adds different elements to it. But there is a pointed part of this parable that he bases in reality, in a history, in a timeline, that everybody in that area would have said, oh, I remember when that happened. Let me share with you the story that would have made this parable sound so familiar to his audience that was around him at the time most of you are aware maybe all of you are aware that rome was ruling over israel they ruled over jerusalem ruled over jericho ruled over everywhere the israelites were rome ruled and caesar was the high head ruler over Rome. Now Caesar was intelligent. He went, he conquered, he would take over the area, but because he realized that the areas, Rome was vast. It took over so many parts of the world, Israel just being one of them. But because he was a wise ruler in ways of the world, he recognized that it was in his benefit when he took over a country that he needed to kind of leave some of their traditions, leave some of their customs in place, and he needed to put in charge of that area a subordinate ruler. He needed to put in charge of that place a lower king, a lesser king. So Rome was ruled by Caesar, but all throughout the different countries that were ruled by Rome, you had other kings, other rulers. Herod the Great, according to uh, Josephus, in about 40 B.C., went to Rome and he negotiated with Mark Anthony to rule over Israel under Caesar. So Herod the Great recognized Caesar has overcome Israel. Herod the Great, who gave himself that name, wanted to be the subordinate ruler over Israel. So the custom was if you wanted to rule over that area, you had to make a journey to go see Caesar, the high, mighty king. And when you saw Caesar, you negotiated with him for rule over the area that you wanted. So Herod the Great goes to see Caesar in about 40 B.C., and he negotiates with Caesar, and Caesar sends him back as ruler as king over Jerusalem, over Israel. He ruled until about 4 B.C., and upon his death, he divided the kingdom into three different parts. We're not going to look at all the different parts. The part that is interesting to our story this morning is one of his sons was a man by the name of Archelaus. And Archelaus, in Herod the Great's will, was given Jericho and Jerusalem. Archelaus was not a good ruler. He was not a kind ruler. He knew that the will... That his father had written. Put him in a position of authority. But he was still going to have to go see Caesar. He was still going to have to go get his kingship. His title from Caesar. Before he could actually have rule over Jerusalem and Jericho. But before he went. The very first thing. That Archelaus did. To establish his dominance over his kingdom is that the first Passover that was observed once he was king, he had 3,000 Israelites killed. 3,000 just murdered for no other reason other than he wanted to display his might. He wanted to display his power. Archelaus was hated He was despised. No one wanted him as ruler. Nobody wanted him as king. And so, the time came for Archelaus to go see Caesar in Rome. And as he makes his journey there, a delegation of Israelites, of some of the important men in Jerusalem and in Jericho gathered together and they said we're going to go to Caesar as well and we're going to plead with Caesar they're going to plead with him bud they're going to plead with Caesar and say please don't let Archelaus rule over Jerusalem and Jericho he is slaughtered three thousand of hours don't let him be in charge so the delegation goes up they follow it did no good caesar had no care at all for the delegation he ruled and let archelaus be crowned as the king over that area he didn't rule for long he was only in power for about 10 years But when Jesus shares this parable, immediately, immediately, it drew to their attention this story that they would have remembered the time when Archelaus was coming into power and they sent a delegation up there to try and stop him. Because he was hated and he was hated because he slaughtered three thousand Israelites that's why it sounded familiar to his audience at large let me say this that the frustrations of Israel were not any better towards Rome at the time that Jesus was sharing this parable at the time that he was going to Jerusalem, they desired more than anything else that someone would come and someone would overthrow Rome. And so as Jesus draws nearer to Jerusalem, they look at Jesus and this is a man who has fed them. He's filled their bellies. This is a man who is healing The blind and the deaf. He's raising people from the dead. This is a man that crowds are following. Because he is doing things. That no one else has done before. And they're gathering and surrounding him because they're thinking maybe this Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem maybe he brings the kingdom maybe he overthrows Rome maybe he takes Caesar out maybe Pontius Pilate who's in charge maybe he's going down this Jesus he's the one we're going to follow and so verse 11 tells us as they heard these things, well, what things did they hear? What things did they hear? They heard, they heard Jesus say in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. They had heard Him tell the disciples back in Luke 18, 31-34, That he was going to die. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. They'd heard those things. But they still were wrapped up in this mindset that Rome needs to go down. We need a kingdom, a throne established again in Jerusalem. And Jesus, you're it. You're the God of our full bellies. You're the guy who picks people up, who are dead, you make us well when we're sick, so you're our guy. And they say this uh, in verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, and that word there, the appear. it's only used one other time in Scripture. it's Acts 21 one through three i'm not going to uh flip there necessarily but that's the only other time that it appears it's it's a nautical term and the mindset is that as he's drawing near to jerusalem there's a There's a hill in the way from where they are now. They can't see Jerusalem yet, but as they're getting near, as they're about to crest that hill, they'll be able to see Jerusalem, and it's like when you're on a a ship, and they have someone looking out for land, and he would see off in the distance the land, and he would shout, land ho! He would shout the appearance of that land. As they're drawing near to Jerusalem, as they're getting near, as they're about to crest this hill and see Jerusalem, they're anticipating a kingdom. But Christ came first to endure the cross, He came to seek and to save the, the lost. And then. On that cross, he is going to accomplish a work that only he can do. He's going to rise from the grave. He's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to be inaugurated as king. His ascension, by the way, is about eight weeks away from this time. And upon his return, he's going to assume the throne. When he comes back, he's going to have the throne that conquers every enemy that puts every enemy under his foot. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. I'll read this for you very quickly. Tells us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand Of the throne of God we know that right now he is inaugurated as king he will be coming again He's already seated at the right hand of God the scripture testifies to that in Revelation chapter 3 verse 21 It tells us the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne Matthew, chapter 25, verse 31, the Lord tells us again, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne so they are anticipating him to come and be on his glorious throne and he is at this moment seated at the right hand of the father he is inaugurated as king and he will certainly return one day and he will put every enemy to defeat he will conquer every enemy the last enemy to be destroyed will be death and we will all if we are in him live forever in eternity seeing the face of our savior That is as real a reality as anything else we can hope for or see. But at this point, he's on his way to Jerusalem to seek and to save the lost. And people hate him. And people despise him. The Pharisees are even now trying to put him to death. And when he comes... There will still be those who despise him. But unlike Archelaus, unlike all the other rulers, Jesus' reign will be marked by overwhelming grace. And this story shows it. So let's, let's look at his parable. Verses 11 through 14. He tells them a parable. Let's look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a noble man, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. They understand this. It's a story they get. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Jesus calls ten doulos. That's the term. We have Here in the ESV it it translates as calling ten of his servants, that's ten of his doulos. The better rendering there is ten of his slaves. These are people who are in his service, and they're there as his obedient and as his slaves. Ten doulos are given ten minas. Well, what is a mina? It's just a a measure of money. A mina was about three months' worth of wages. So it's not just a vast sum of money, but it's it's pretty good. If someone looked at me and said, "Hey, I'll go ahead and give you three months' worth of your of what you could earn right now," I would not be opposed to that. But it's not a fortune. About three months worth of wages for someone who would work in a field. One mina for each slave, for each doulos. And they are given the instruction, go do business while I'm away. Prove to be a faithful slave. Prove to be a faithful servant. There are two types of slaves in this story. There's a faithful slave. There's an unfaithful slave. But before we meet them, we meet the foes of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice this, and and this, this really sets the stage for what's about to come later on at the end of the parable. In verse 14, it says, But his citizens hated him. But his citizens hated him. If you notice that, even these citizens who hated him, they didn't get a chance to say, like, we've, we've all heard it said, I'm sure, uh, throughout the political landscape that exists in our country. Well, that's not my president or uh, that's not my political official. I didn't have that opportunity to say that then and there any more than we really have to say it today. But they are his citizens. They're his Even the ones who hate him, they are under his authority. They are under his rule and they are not getting out of it. They didn't get out of it when they went to try to get Archelaus seated off of it. These ones who hate him now, they're under his rule and they're not getting him off of that throne. But unlike the citizens who hated Archelaus for his wicked deeds, these who hate this nobleman, They hate him for no cause, and it's uh, reminiscent of what Jesus said in John 15, 25, that they will hate him without cause. They hate him. That sets the stage for what's about to come upon them at the last in the parable. But let's look at these slaves, let's look at the two categories, and like I said, as we see these three character types, We see the faithful slave, the unfaithful slave, and the foes of our Lord. As we see them, everyone in this room is one of those categories. You are either a faithful slave, an unfaithful slave, or you are a foe. Everyone in here, including me and including you. Let's look at verse 15, the faithful slave, the nobleman returns when he returned having received the kingdom he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business he returns he calls his slaves and the first comes up to him and notice what he says he says he says lord and this is uh verse 16 your mina has made ten minus more. Notice the 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 mindset of this slave of this servant. He doesn't come up and say, "Look what I did, King! Look what I did, nobleman! Look what I did! I went and got you so much more money." No, he recognizes from the outset, Lord, your mina, that which you have given me, your mina. Has made 10 minas more. I didn't go make 10 minas more. My wealth, my abilities didn't accumulate more for you. Your mina went and did it. Your gift went and did it. At no point does this do loss take any credit. At no point does he say or point a light at himself? He says, your power did it. Your gift has made more. I, I I just took it to the right place. I just went to the right area. Your power did it. Look what your mina did. It's your money. If he's the king, then it's his economy that would have established and made the ability for one mina to earn ten minas more. I did nothing. I just took it to the right place. And I love this. He said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you get ten cities. And to those hearing the parable, their jaw had to drop just a little bit because they had the understanding of this is not a vast fortune that's been given to him. He hasn't made a vast fortune, he's made a lot, he's made a lot more than he had, but ten cities? The grace of this nobleman, the reward of this nobleman, far exceeds anything that was accomplished in this servant's doing. The grace of this nobleman is abounding. And they all would have heard, wait, ten minus is ten cities? What is this grace? What is this nobleman? What is this king? Who can do this? Who would do this? This is abounding. This is grace that far exceeds the job that was accomplished. He didn't do anything. He just maybe took it to a right area. And under this nobleman's rule, this slave will rule as well here we see the grace of this King and though his slaves accomplished nothing nothing outside of the Providence and the gift of their master he lavishes grace upon them and the second is like the first faithful slave verse 18 He says in the second game saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Again, the same humility. Your mina has earned five more. You might say, well, why didn't he get ten? It's the reality of it. Not everyone has the same opportunity. Not everyone has the same chances. Not everyone has the same things set before them. There is no shame in that if You have been given a gift and you have been told to go here and you go here and you come away with five minas rather than ten. The gift has still done what it set out to do. The work has still been accomplished that was set out to be accomplished. You were just there to take it. The same thing happens. Your Three months worth of wages, your mina now is turned into five cities. This again is lavish, almost an embarrassing amount of grace. These slaves loved their master, they loved their king, they desired to see him return. They desired to show him that yes this gift has been a treasure for me and it's been a treasure to those that I've gone and done business with. They took his mina and they did everything they could with it. But verse 20 comes and we're introduced to a very different kind of slave. By the way there were 10 slaves who were given 10 minas. We're not told all the slaves. And the reason for that is because we get all we need to out of just three that are mentioned. Verse 20. Then another came saying Lord here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. This slave kept it in a handkerchief. Now that doesn't mean as much to us today but to keep something in a handkerchief is almost just to disregard it. Yeah, you've got it, but it's, it's of no consequence. It's of no real value. I just keep it in a handkerchief. It would be like if we just took something and put it in our pocket. Is it there? Yeah. Is it with us? Yes. But it's really of no consequence. We're just walking around with it in our pocket. They just walk around with it in his handkerchief. This gift was tucked away. The same gift mind you, that the other slaves, the other two received, they took and went and did business with it. This this guy takes that mina, he puts it in his pocket, tucks it away in a handkerchief, and it's hidden away. It's never used, and it's never shown. This is a slave who basically sees no point in rebelling against the king. Yeah, he's going to come back He's going to be on the throne. He's going to be in command. He's going to be in charge. There's no point in rebelling against this king. So sure, I'll take his mina. I'll go ahead and count myself as one of his slaves. I'll put it here in my pocket. I'll keep it with me so that when he comes back, I'll say, yeah, I'm one of yours. But he doesn't want this king. He doesn't want this master to be a part of his life doesn't want him to be a part of his business, doesn't want him to be a part of his day. No work is going to be done with this mina, with this gift that has been granted to him. And I, I want you to notice the reason that he gives. Verse 21, For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Do you recognize what he just told this returning king? Do you realize what he just said to him? I know you're going to have the power. I know you're going to have the authority. He accuses him of being a thief. You take what is not yours. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. he accuses this king of being a thief. But here's your mina. But here's the gift. Here it is. I give it back to you. It's yours. You see, I'm one of your slaves. I didn't do anything with it because, I mean, I know. I mean, I know you're just going to be in charge anyway. I know that. I mean, it doesn't really matter what I do. You're going to be king. You're going to be ruler. And, I mean, you're going to take it back from me anyway. So here's your mina back. All this slave wants is to be counted as one of the king's men. He doesn't want it in his life. He doesn't want it in his day-to-day. He doesn't want it in his thoughts. He doesn't want it in his business. All he wants is just to say at the end, yeah, I'm on your team. now. Give me a couple of cities. That's the mindset. How many sitting in churches across this country view the gospel with the same lackluster feelings? How many in this room do that? How many do we see take the gospel so lightly? I know this person far too well. I've seen them countless times in my life. You have seen them. We live in the buckle of the Bible belt for crying out loud. You can't walk anywhere without finding someone who say, yeah, I go to church. Yes, I'm a church member at this one over here. That's where I go. When's the last time you've been? It's been a while. But I'm a church member. Check Here's your mina. How many of us know that person? How many of us can name that person? How many of us, if we're honest, would have to put ourselves in the name of that person? This guy knows the gospel. He knows Jesus, or he knows that this noble man is going to be the king. He knows that this man's going to come back. He's going to have all rule. He's going to have all authority. He can tell you that. But he never does anything with this gift. It's just a token. It's going to put him on the right side. It's just membership. Too many people, when they see Jesus, they'll just pull it out and they'll say, here it is. Here's my church membership. I belong. Lord, Lord, Lord. Did you not know what all I did for you? Here it is, Lord, Lord. Here's here's what I've got. I've got your mina. They merely want to avoid hell, but they want nothing to do with the master who they claim to serve. That is not a faithful slave. That is not a faithful servant. That is not a faithful follower of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They never wanted life with him or for him, so they will not have life. So this false slave is judged. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. I'll condemn you with your own words. Let me say this real quick. There are some commentators who are unsure whether this slave is a believer or not. There's no confusion in my mind here at all. The Lord doesn't look at those who are in him and say, you wicked servant. No, what does he look at them and say, but well done, my faithful servant. He condemns him with his own words, this wicked servant. He said... He, and I, I love he uses his words right back at him. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? You, you knew that? You know I'm a thief? You know that I'm taking what I don't deposit? What among the kingdom is not the king's? Nothing what servant in the kingdom is not the kings no one everything belongs to this ruler and you're telling me i take what i do not deposit i sow what i do not or i reap what i do not sow you know that i'm a thief and yet i own everything i own you you know who i am and you're calling me a thief why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming I might have collected it with interest in other words if you really believe that if you really thought that if you really thought I was just gonna take what was not mine if you really believed that you would have done something to get more if you actually had any fear of me at all you would have done something with what I gave you but you've done nothing nothing If he really believed his words, he would have done the exact opposite. This nobleman is no thief. He gave the mina, he gave the economy, and he gives the reward. So why would he not invest it? Why would he not take it to earn interest? Because he has no love for his king. He has no love for this returning victorious, mighty ruler. verse 24 through 26 the mina is taken away from that unfaithful servant and it's given to the one who has the 10 and i want you to see this king looks at the wicked servant and removes from him exactly what he had what he had counted on to keep him as a part of the club, to keep him as part of the membership, man, he takes it away from him and completely cuts the legs out from underneath him and he gives it to the one with ten. And look at the objection here. And they said to him, this is verse 25, Lord, he has ten minas. The objection comes up. You've already given him so much grace. You've already given him so much. He didn't do anything that was worthy of what you already gave him and you're giving him more. And the response is yes yes that's the nature of the grace of our king that's the nature of the grace of our lord our returning roar yes the grace far abounds greater than anything we could ask or see yes that's our king if we are his yes He said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Do you think, did they think they were telling him somebody didn't know? Hey, he's already got 10. I know. And here's more. Our Lord, our Savior, if you remember those old commercials. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. In Christ, it's the ultimate. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. For those with much, much will be given. And I'm reminded of what is said in Isaiah 55 that the Word will not return void. If you've been given this gospel, if you've been given this treasure, if you've been given this gift, when you take it and when you go to do business with it in your day-to-day life, it will not return void. Even if someone slams the door in your face, it hasn't returned void because your gospel, the gospel that is your hope, that is your life, that is your day-to-day, that is your, your joy, it has gone forth and it's done what it's set out to accomplish. It will not return void. God has given it. He has given the environment for its success to do exactly what it needs to do to accomplish. So for those who have much, much will be given. You've been given the gospel. Do something with it. If you're in Christ, you're a citizen of His. Live like it. For those who have not... What they have will be taken away. Guys, the gospel would have earned him interest. He didn't go do anything with it because he had no love for his king. The last category are these foes to the kingdom. The nobleman deals with the foes, he says, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are people who knew he was coming back, and they rebelled against him. They said, I don't care if he's coming back. I don't want anything to do with him, and I'll be vocal. I'll be a part of the delegation that says I hate him. Reminds me of, um, there's a, a, a man named Todd Friel. He's, a, um, he's an evangelist. He, has, uh, he hosts a, a podcast called Wretched Radio. He's a solid and good teacher. One interview that he has had has become particularly infamous. He interviewed the late Christopher Hitchens. For those of you who don't know that name, Christopher Hitchens was a profoundly lost atheist who wrote a book called God is Not Great. He died of cancer, so he he, He knows the answer to the question I'm about to tell you. Todd asked him far too well now. But Todd asked him in this interview, he said, I know you don't believe in God, but what if, what if there was a God? And what if this God gave you life? What if he gave you the air you're breathing? What if he gave you the steps that you take? What if he gave you all this kind of stuff? I know you don't believe him, but what if there is a God who gave him to you? What if he's there? Is he not good to you? Is he not worthy of praise? And Christopher Hitchens without missing a beat says, no. No, that God's not good. No, I don't want anything to do with that God. I don't care if he's giving me life or not. I don't care if he's giving me air or not. I don't care what he's giving me. No, I don't want that god. These are people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness like it says in Romans 1:18. They know who the king is. Everyone knows who the king is. Whether they suppress the truth and unrighteousness or not, you know there's a god. It's written on the very fabric of who we are. I know who he is, but they hate him. They'll do anything to overthrow him, even if it means they just overthrow him in their mind and they just choose not to believe in him. And they will be destroyed by God, by the very God they hate and the God they tried to do away with. So in conclusion, I want to just take just a moment to look at the far exceeding grace that abounds when you're with Christ. This parable showcases, it highlights the amazing, the far exceeding grace of our Lord. In... Our passage that was read earlier in First Timothy, Paul was overcome by God's grace. He said, I don't deserve this grace. I don't deserve to be one of His, and yet He's called me to be one of them. I'm going to do everything I can for this King who's called me out of darkness. He says, how could He love me? How could He use me? Those in Christ's service will know a grace that is far greater than any of our meager efforts, a grace that is greater than anything we could accomplish on our own. But as it in conclusion, this thought struck me as I was preparing for this lesson, as this for this sermon. Do you remember Archelaus? The first thing he did was to kill 3,000 Israelites. To show his dominance, to show his rule and his authority over the people. Christ came. He came to seek and to save the lost. He went, he suffered and died on the cross. He rose to life on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He's seated on the right hand of the Father right now. Do you know... What the first act of our Lord was when He was seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, if you don't remember, let me read it for you. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is right after Pentecost. Peter's preaching. Now when they heard this, listen to this. Who's coming back? He is worthy of all praise and honor. He is worthy of obedience. He's coming back. And this is not a king like the kings of old. This is a king who, rather than slaughter his people just to prove his power, he says, I will come and I will seek and I will save the lost. And he's still doing it today. That's our king. Let's pray. And let's worship Him together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love You, and we do praise You, and we thank You that You are a King who can save those who are lost. We thank You that we can be a faithful servant who, although we have no accomplishments on our own, we can look to the gift of Your Gospel, and we can say, look what Your Gospel has done in my life and in the lives of those around me. I pray that as we've gone through this parable that we would take a serious look at where are we? Which one are we? Are we the faithful? Are we the false? Or are we the foe? And Lord, I pray that where there is, where there is sin, You will cause repentance. Where there is unbelief, God, You will convert Hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And I pray where there is one who is maybe deceived, that just because they're a member on a church role, they are in your service. I pray that you would make today a day where they desire to follow you with all of their heart and all their passion. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we do ask these things and for his sake. Amen.